All right, so let's continue Kant here. But before I do that, I have some kind of, you know, chorish things to mention. Uh, these should all be available on Podbean now. So for those people that wanted this as a podcast, uh, it should be available there. I'm in the process of moving it on over to iTunes, so you'll be able to access it there. Uh, and that's for anyone who, you know, doesn't like YouTube, because obviously YouTube isn't the best place to listen to music unless you buy a, an account, which is silly. Uh, in addition, I started a patron or Patreon account that is, I, I'm using it to pay off the podcast fees. Uh, so if you have, you know, a dollar to give away, uh, I'd appreciate it. But if not, you know, don't sweat it. All right, so jumping into here now, in the first episode, we looked at the introduction, then the transcendental aesthetic, and then the transcendental logic. So obviously, I'm not going to give a whole big summary on that, uh, but this is just to say that we're coming right after that. So this is still relating to the transcendental logic, but it's specifically the first chapter of the analytic of concepts, he calls it, which is on the, the, on the clue to the discovery of all pure concepts of the understanding. Now, I should say, to kind of preface this, that I'm trying to present this in such a way as to not be repetitive. So for anyone that's read it, or as a warning for anyone that hopes to read this book, you'll find that Kant like, develops an idea, then talks about it for a long time, or writes about it, and then adds a little thing to that idea, and then talks about it for a long time, and then adds a little thing, and then talks about it. So it, it builds very slowly. Uh, and for that reason, it can feel very repetitive because he, he feels the need to constantly reiterate, you know, the problem and what he's trying to do. So I try to, you know, cut through all that in order to make it as concise and, you know, methodical as I can. So this section is deals primarily with the topic of understanding. So to kind of reiterate, Kant is interested in the how it is possible that humans can perceive things at all how we can actually organize things in such a way in our mind that make it possible for us to experience the world. Because before Kant, it was either you could reason something into existence, that is, in your mind, or you experience something and it tells you something about the world. Where Kant's not totally satisfied with that because he says, well, what makes it possible to perceive the world? Unless, of course, there are things in the world that we already have a sense of, that is, for him, space and time, that exist out there, but that we can only conceptualize in our head because we cannot perceive space nor time. So it's kind of like a chicken and egg situation. What comes first, the perception or the ability to perceive? To which Kant says the answer is actually in what lies underneath both of those, what makes them possible. So here we're going to talk about the understanding as performing something of that function. So Kant asks what, Kant asks, what makes it possible for us to perceive anything? Well, what is necessary is there to be what he calls a concept. So, as I mentioned in the first uh, episode, you, we perceive a thing or we sense a thing through our senses. It then enters intuition, where we know that, in the example of like a tree, we know not to run in fear from a tree, but we don't necessarily possess the language to codify the tree or to know that two trees belong to the same kind of genome of treeness. Uh, but it's only beyond that, in the formation of a concept, that we then come to know what the tree is. Now, this idea, the idea of the concept, is very important for Kant and like 
much of what is we're about to talk about deals with it from judgment to analogies to everything like that and don't worry it'll hopefully all make sense so for kant he says cognition of understanding is what he says cognition through concepts it's not through intuition because intuition isn't really satisfactory intuition doesn't tell us something about the universals of the world or, or anything like that but on the flip side having just pure a priori reasoning or pure reason isn't enough either because it is just empty concepts for him because if we don't have an image of something to attach to a concept and then of course images are things we only get through experience then we have it's just a, a, a hollowed concept that then does not exist so intuition is that which for Kant relies on affect so dealing with sensibility dealing with what hits us almost without our control that which you know is imbued upon the body through our senses things we see and hear and feel and touch and smell whereas concepts rely on what he calls function so that is uh, the action of ordering different representations so as I mentioned in the case of the tree we know that a tree is the same as you know an, an oak tree is the same as an evergreen tree in that they are both trees but it is only once we've developed that concept that we can actually clump the two together because there's nothing in us a priori before perceiving the thing that knows differences between trees. So this is what Kant is really getting at. He's saying that the world outside is essentially constructed by our faculties in that we perceive the world through images, as I mentioned in the first episode, and then it is through those images that we actually develop the world outside we form it so the world does not exist out there as a thing in itself because if it did exist as a thing in itself we would not be able to think it so this is a crucial point for Kant in that if the world is out there and each thing has its own kind of like ontological condition it is its own kind of being then we cannot actually get at the heart of it but he gets around that problem because he says that everything is only ever an appearance to us so therefore we have the capacity to then think the thing away from the thing because if the thing was only determined by itself not by its appearance we could not therefore process it and therefore we could not then look into ourselves to find out what it is that makes it possible for us to perceive at all and that is because for him no representation actually relates directly to the object it instead at best relates to the intuition of the object intuition implying our kind of subjectivity how we have been subjectively manipulated you know and I take out all negative pejorative or negative connotation associated with that but how we are affected by the thing by the appearance of the thing is then how we relate to it so then what is it about concepts or what is it that almost allows us to do something with concepts so if we have concepts and they are adequately associated with an image of a thing or an appearance a th that we can then infer some kind of connection to a physical object in the world, let's say a lamp or a book or whatever, Kant says that that in itself is not quite enough. So here he introduces the problem of, or the capacity for judgment. Judgment is what is wholly necessary for us to be able to discern different concepts from other ones. Whereas if we didn't have con uh, judgment, it would be as though a, t a total free-for-all of just a hodgepodge of concepts that 
kind of fly at us. Now, this relates to some extent to how we perceive things out in the world. Because for him, if we didn't have some kind of faculty within our brains that made it possible for us to order the world through our perceptions, then all we would get is just craziness flying at us at every moment. So if I saw a chair, I wouldn't see a kind of structure. I would see legs and, and you know cross beams and a seat and, and a back thing. And all of that would come flying at me and I wouldn't be able to kind of code it. I wouldn't be able to organize it. So he says very much the same thing occurs in the case of judgment, where judgment is necessary in order to infer various meanings about concepts in relation to other ones. And it is from judgment that he says that it is the base from which understanding itself can emerge. So it subtends the possibility for perception almost, because it makes it possible to codify and organize. So for him, and he makes this kind of interesting claim, he says that judgment is the representation of a representation of the object. So a thing out in the world is, you know, given to us through a representation, through an image that is that we subjectively perceive. But then there's a subjective faculty within us that is judgment that then codes it, that then makes it understandable within our mind, which then we can then relate to different concepts, to different ideas, to different things which is very important for Kant because that, you know, as I said, makes it possible for us to cognize at all. But at the same time, it is kind of, he, he's, um, he's remaining true to his word in that there's nothing that is not an appearance in itself. So this judgment isn't a metaphysical thing as he has a problem with metaphysics, at least to some extent, because it doesn't arrive dogmatically. It doesn't arrive from some kind of divine thing in itself but is instead another kind of concept and another kind of image that we have embedded within us. So then it is for him, in contrast to someone like Aristotle, where Aristotle says that, you know, humans are political animals. Kant says humans are judgmental animals. And this isn't judgment in the sense of, you know, what the superego can do, what I out in the world judge, like, should I have McDonald's or Wendy's or whatever? Um, this is silly example, but anyways, um, judgment is what actually occurs before we have the capacity to make choices. So that's important. Note that the difference here, it's not judgment that we actually have control over, but judgment that occurs before understanding is even possible. So now we get a list and he gives us a list of four titles that essentially encapsulate judgment without content. So judgment as a, as a kind of uh, abstract form. So these four categories, and then they're broken down into three subcategories, and I know that this is going to be difficult for me to convey through voice alone, through audio alone, but I'm going to move through it slowly and methodically to try and make it as clear as possible. So bear with me. So there are four different modes, essentially. First is quantity. Second is quality. Third is relational. And four is modality. So quantity, quality, relational modality. So these are three different forms to some extent that judgment can assume. The th fourth one, modality, is the closest thing that to actually resembling the form that, um, that judgment can assume. But the three other ones, that is quantity, quality, and relational, are, th are terms that Kant is using to describe different types of judgment, different types of kind of logical sequence of judgment. So now I'm going to go through each one of them one by one 
and break them down into their constitutive subcategories. So again, we have quantity, quality, relational, and modality. So starting out with number one, we have quantity that he breaks down into three different possibilities. There's the universal, there's the uh, particular, and there is the singular. Each one has, I, I can attach an example to each so that it makes sense, so that you know, you know what he means by this. So under, we're still under quantity here. The first one, universal, let's give the example that all dogs are cats. A weird example, or better yet, um, sorry, scratch that, it's a terrible example. Let's say all crows are black. That's an example of a universal quantity when it comes to judgment. A particular one would be saying some crows are black. And then finally, a singular one would be that crow is black. Okay, so I think we're pretty clear here. Under quantity, there's universal, particular, and singular. Universal, all crows are black, particular. Some crows are black, uh, and singular, or particular, and then singular, this crow is black, or that crow is black. Okay, now let's move on to quality. So we did quantity, now quality. So this can be broken down into three as well. They, they're all going to be broken down into three, in case I didn't say that. Uh, quality can be broken down into three. They are affirmative, negative, or infinite. Where affirmative would be to say, crows are black. That's saying something specifically about the subject. That is, crows, uh, a predicate is added to it in the affirmative. The negative, kind of the opposite, no crows are black. So that doesn't actually tell us much about the crows, except that we know that they aren't black. Now, of course, this is just an example. Of course, all crows are black, but just bear, you know, bear with my illustration here. So that negative example doesn't actually tell us very much about the crows. It just tells us they aren't black. It doesn't tell us what they actually are. So that's a negative judgment in that it doesn't really increase our knowledge of a thing. And then uh, an infinite um, quality. So we have affirmative, uh, negative, and then infinite. It would be crows are non-black, which is the, very much in the same line as the negative in that it doesn't tell us so much about it, but it tells us more than the negative in that it gives us a distinct, you know, qualitative assessment of the crow as being, or of crows as being non-black in that they cannot ever embody that kind of that place. Okay, so that covers quantity, quality, now relational. Uh, the first one is categorical. So under relational, the first one is categorical or actually all three, they are categorical, hypothetical, and disjunctive. Sorry. So categorical, it again would be saying something like crows are black, putting it into a classificatory system. So the form in that is different from the other ones because you might be wondering, okay, how is it actually different? If I say all crows are black and then crows are black and then crows are black, how do these modes of judgment actually change? Well, you should think of it in terms of their, uh, in this case, their relationality, because it falls under the relation camp, but also think of it in terms of how that might look differently, where if we then make a kind of a relational association between crows and blackness, we then have two categories that are essentially coming together, whereas we have in the previous ones, all crows are black, we're saying something specific about the crows, you know, where the, the blackness is just a kind of predicate that is attached to it. So it's 
in this case, it's kind of giving more of a relational framework in that both are held up to a kind of um, subjective standard that, you know, they have their own kind of autonomy. Okay, rant over. So relational, first one, just mentioned, we have categorical. And then next, hypothetical, which is if crows are black, then, I don't know, then pigs are pink, which doesn't actually... Uh, let's assume that there was some kind of connection between pigs and uh, crows, but in the, the example I give, obviously there isn't. But let me see. Maybe there's a better example. Right. One example might be like if I had the name of a crow, I could say all crows are black. Therefore, Billy the crow is black. See, so we're drawing a kind of um, kind of logical sequence here that is um, consistent. So then finally, so we under relational, again, we have the categorical, the hypothetical. Now we have the disjunctive. So crows are either black or they're white, let's say. Of course, they're only ever black, but this is the example that I'm giving. Uh, disjunctive would be giving us, a, in this case, a kind of choice or kind of limiting it so that we have a better sense of the thing itself without necessarily knowing um, what you know, the, the true thing is, or if it's a thing that can actually alter, like squirrels are white or black or brown, we're, we're learning something about them, but it's not a, like a definitive thing about the squirrels. All right, so there we have quantity, quality, and relational. Now, finally, we have modality. So modality, the first one under modality is the problematic. So this would be the, an example would be possibly crows are black, which relates to a kind of understanding, according to Kant, at least that's the term he applies to it. Then, so we have modality, and under that we have problematic that I just went over. Now we have assertoric, so that is, actually, crows are black. You know, it's a kind of like, it wasn't always the case, but it's something that has come into fruition. So assertoric goes back to Aristotle, and it's the a kind of logical proposition that something is either the case or it either it, it is either the case or it is not the case. So it's highlighting the possibility of both. Uh, so that's assertoric, recovered problematic, and then there's apodictic. So that is necessarily crows are black. So apodictic meaning absolute certainty. So under modality, it doesn't tell us more things about the content of the judgment, but rather the form that it could take in that it's either it might be the case that crows are black or crows are black because at one time they were white and we know they went through some tra transformation and now they're black or they are absolutely black but that doesn't tell us so much about uh, the content of the judgment but it is nevertheless still important so he gives us and I kind of alluded to it just a few seconds ago uh, the three components under modality are the three subcategories, that is to reiterate the problematic, the assertoric, and the apodictic, each correspond respectively to three different domains. So the problematic relates to understanding. Assertoric is, for him, power of judgment, so relating to judgment. And then apodictic relates to reason. So that is the kind of a priori mode that we can infer a kind of universal truth of all of the crow in this situation that is never changing. Okay, so that's what he gets out with judgment because he kind of sets the stage for that. 
for what he talks about later on, even though all that much it's not, you know, it's just a thing he kind of explores but doesn't serve that much of a purpose later on. I know it's because he's being philosophical, philosophically rigorous, but we could do without it, but I thought it necessary to still mention it. So now I want to read a little recap that he gives moving into the next uh, little section here just to kind of keep us all grounded. So he writes, and this is on 2.10 in my version. As has already been frequently said, general logic abstracts, abstracts from all content of cognition and expects that representations will be given to it from elsewhere, wherever this may be, in order for it to transform them into concepts analytically. Transcendental logic, on the contrary, has a manifold of sensibility that lies before it a priori, which the transcendental aesthetic has offered to it, in order to provide the pure concepts of the understanding with a matter, without which they would be without any content, thus completely empty. And then space and time, he says, uh, exist in that space, exist in that sphere, that sphere of the sensible that comes before all possible cognition. Whereas for him, general logic, at least in the form of judgment, the judgments that we saw just now, or heard just now, uh, deal primarily with reason as though it was something completely devoid of any kind of relationship to the world. Like it's just something we can reason with our brains. Whereas Kant, again, is trying to find out what makes that actually possible. So now we continue here to talk about the possibility for cognition, where he says that in order for it to exist, that is cognition, there must be what he calls an action synthesis. So this is the process of organizing the representations together with each other and comprehending their manifoldness in one cognition. So this action synthesis is pure if, Kant writes, if the manifold is given not empirically but a priori, so that is through space and time. But of course this pure synthesis is, doesn't rely upon itself, it doesn't just spawn itself. It goes back to that kind of crucial idea of the synthetic a priori that we mentioned in the first uh, episode and that he mentions in that that is what makes possible either a priori or a posteriori thinking. So it rests upon that and it depends upon it in order for it to actually cognize, in order for it to actually be able to perceive the world. But transcendental logic isn't so much concerned with how things are clumped in the world, like how trees are clumped, you know, in the mind in order for them to be cognizable. Again, transcendental logic is what anything that's transcendental for Kant is getting at what lies underneath, what makes even that possibility possible. So these, the pure concepts that kind of arrive after the synthetic a priori intervention in the human mind, whenever, whatever that necessarily looks like, um, is then comprised of those four judgments that we mentioned earlier. So that is quantity, quality, relational, and modality, to which he adds different subcategories, but that connect. So I'll just read them out quickly. So we have uh, of quantity, and I'll go back and mention the other ones really quickly. So uh, in relation to quantity, before we had the universal, the particular, and the singular. Now we have the unity, the plurality, and the totality. So universal, unity, plurality, uh, particular, and then totality, singular. Then in quality, we had affirmative, negative, and infinite. And now we have reality, negation, limitation. So affirmative, reality, 
uh, negative, negation, and then infinite limitation. Then we have relational, which was categorical, hypothetical, and then disjunctive. Now we have of inheritance and subsistence, of causality and dependence, of community, which, you know, categorical relates to the of, in of inheritance and subsistence. Uh, hypothetical relates to of causality and dependence, and then disjunctive relates to of community, of community, sorry. Then we have modality finally, which was problematic, assertoric, and apodictic, which then translates to possibility, existence, and necessity. So that is um, problematic relates to possibility, sorry, possibility or impossibility, assertoric is existence or non-existence, and then apodictic is necessity and contingency. So this is how he conceptualizes these judgments in relation to our faculty for, you know, judging the world. So he says that the first two, that is quantity and quality, are for him of a mathematical nature, whereas the second two, relational and modality, are dynamical. And that, and these are some principles he's giving us about it, uh, in each of the three subcategories from each of the different, the four different judgments, the third one is always the product of the first two. So to give an example, uh, unity in the case of quantity, we have unity, plurality, and then totality. He says totality is the product of unity and plurality. For quality, you know, limitation is the product of reality and negation, and so on and so forth. For then for relational and modality. So to go back to this mathematical and dynamical, because I'm sure you're dying to know <laughs> what necessarily is the difference. For him, the mathematical is kind of an objective condition. So this is something he talks about much later on in the book, because that's what, thanks Kant, um, uh, which mathematical deals specifically with the propensity itself to perceive, whereas the dynamical, I said perceive, right? I didn't say deceive, perceive. Uh, whereas the dynamical is interested in the things being perceived. So the dynamical corresponds to the relational and the modality, so modality being, you know, the form in which the judgment can take, not actually telling us something about the things in the world, uh, or, sorry, being totally predicated upon the things in the world, uh, and then the relational being, you know, the relationship between those things in the world. So having a kind of subjective character to it, whereas the uh, mathematical is dealing with the propensity itself to perceive. Now, I should say, these are going to come back later. So they're going to come back and they're going to assume a different form. So whereas we had a kind of uh, quantity, quality, relational, the modality, we're going to have later on, and I'm just saying it to kind of preface it for anyone that's actually, you know, planning to listen to all of these brave souls. Um, right, we had quantity, quality, modality, or relational, the modality. Then we're going to have axioms of intuition, anticipations of perception, analogies of experience, and then postulates of empirical thinking generally that are going to be correlates to quantity, quality, relational, and then modality. But we're going to get to that. That's probably in like 100 pages or 60 pages. Wow. Okay. So now from here, we move into the transcendental analytic. That is now we're dealing with the second chapter on the deduction uh, of pure understanding. So he begins this section by thinking about the law. So he says, in a courtroom, to, to bring up the possibility of fortune or fate 
is kind of a strange thing because that doesn't lend itself to reason nor experience because we cannot imagine uh, a priori of the existence of fate, nor can we experience it because we only experience the kind of present. So he says, and this is his privileging the kind of a priori mode, we can only really kind of imagine it, right? We don't have kind of predisposition to understand what fate nor fortune is, but we know that they kind of exist. Uh, whereas things kind of happen through what he'll come to lay out earlier, or later, sorry, cause and effect, there seems to be a kind of sequential th process through time, right? And then if we think about predetermination, like, you know, there are lots of things that can certainly contribute to this. Um, if we have all of these things kind of laid out in the past that are kind of create this moment, then the idea of fate isn't a totally outlandish, superstitious, crazy thing. It corresponds very much to the idea that, you know, time is, um, I guess, perpetual or that it's already laid out, predetermined. There's another term, but it's, it's eluding me. And of course, this relates to space and time in that neither of those things exist empirically, but that we can only think of them a priori, yet they make everything possible for us to perceive at all. So then with this, we're confronted with a problem. And that problem is that how can we infer any kind of objective conditions about the world if everything that we do is like subjective or every thought is subjective? How do we go from the subjective to the objective to which he provides something of an answer? He says, and this is on 222, from 222 to 223, for that objects of sensible intuition must accord with the formal conditions of sensibility that lie in the mind a priori is clear from the fact that otherwise they would not be objects for us, but that they must also accord with the conditions that the understanding requires for the synthetic unity of thinking is a conclusion that is not so easily seen. For appearances could after all be so constituted for the understanding that the understanding would not find them in accord with the conditions of its unity, and everything would then lie in such confusion that, example, in the succession of appearances, nothing would offer itself that would furnish a rule of synthesis, uh, and thus correspond to the concept of cause and effect, so that this concept would therefore be entirely empty, nugatory and without significance. Appearances would nonetheless offer objects to our intuition, for intuition by no means requires the functions of thinking. So what the hell does that mean? Well, this is what I think it means. Um, he says that it is totally necessary for us to only ever kind of have subjective condition within us. That subjective condition being what perceives appearances and perceives the world. But that very subjectivity is what is universal and that very subjectivity what is or i guess we could break it down even further that which is universal about that subjectivity is the capacity to organize things so it's the capacity to know that space and time exist so that in the case of time if i didn't have a conception of time and i were to and i gave this example last time if my book is here on the desk and then it just disappeared I would think that the book ceased to exist. Whereas if we, if I keep in mind the course of time, I know that things can move and, and tr transition and transform throughout space and time. But without a concept of those, the thing would then cease to exist if it does not immediately lend itself to my kind of perception, to my kind of immediate um, kind of in sensibility. 
So there's only three ways that an object can really be thought then, again, only through appearances. That is through sense, which is uh, the synopsis of manifold a priori, the imagination, which is the synthesis of this manifold, and then a perception, which is the unity of this synthesis. So we have this process of, you know, receiving data into our mind, um, recognizing that data as being something that's not going to, you know, eat us or that it belongs to like some kind of like intuitive camp that we know about. And then finally, us organizing it and making sense of it. Now, I know I sound like a broken record, but Kant's a broken record. <laughs> I know that's not a great excuse, but whatever. So the synthesis of judgment or the synthesis that is synthesis, synthesis that is required in order for understanding or judgment to play, to exist, uh, there need to be there are three different forms of synthesis that occur. So the first one is the synthesis of apprehension uh, in the intuition. So everything is understood through inner sense, that which uh, he earlier classified as being relating to the soul or to time. Um, and then the mind discerns itself, or the mind discerns things in relation to time, which we're going to get more into later. And that this ultimately, that is the first thing, the synthesis of apprehension and intuition makes it possible for us to receive to be able to develop concepts at all, or kind of lays that foundation in the form of synthesis. Okay, now the second one, which is the synthesis of reproduction in the imagination, and that is the necessity for uh, of ordered representations. So an example would be that a dog can't signify a dog one week and then signify a cat the next, and then a tree the next, and then a river the next, because then we wouldn't have any kind of coherent synthesis from which to infer to make generalizations, universals, anything like that. And then finally, we have the synthesis of recognition in the concept, which relies upon consciousness to some extent. So without consciousness, all we would think would be uh, what we thought before. So what the hell does that mean? Well, for Kant, he says that consciousness only uh, ser serves the purpose of us developing new ideas, new thoughts. But those new ideas and new thoughts rely on a kind of history of thinking, right? A kind of history of consciousness itself, implying that it's always already there. So concepts allow us to kind of develop a consciousness around the synthesis of recognition because it is only through concepts that we can think at all. So what is important to note here is that not only do objects, that is the appearances of objects out in the world, need to be organized, but even the cognitions that perceive them, that kind of codify them, cognize them, are necessarily organized in some way. And the transcendental process, of course, is interested in that, right? Interested in what makes those things organized, which makes it possible to then perceive the world. Now, this transcendental unity, and this is where he's kind of beginning to extend his theory from, you know, the mind onto the world, this kind of necessitates the formation of laws. Because if we have, for, for Kant, if we have embedded within us a kind of possibility of organization and codification and law and that kind of shit, then he thinks that that might explain, you know, what he come to explain, the categorical imperative or anything like that, our kind of uh, desire for law and code and order. So there, there's a kind of creative component to this in that if we were just kind of rigid, um, you know, things given a kind of predetermined faculties to perceive the world, then we would just be kind of rigid auto like automatons, robots almost, 
To which Kant doesn't want to say that either, because then that's like a kind of formulaic, rigid thing that doesn't explain creativity or any other kind of creative faculty. Uh, so he says that there is imagination plays something of a role, which is what he calls the uh, the pure synthesis of the imagination. So this is for him uh, that where he says that the productive synthesis of it arrives a priori, that is through reason, through thought. Uh, whereas the rep reproductive synthesis of it arrives a posteriori. And that it is the responsibility of the imagination to make sense of perceptions through apprehension by turning them into images that can be then consumed for those other kind of apparatuses in the mind, the kind of engine parts. So that propels us here into the second section of the, uh, on, the on the deduction of the pure concepts of the understanding uh, which is transcendental deduction of the pure concepts of the understanding. So it's here that he thinks about the kind of birth of the subject or birth of the kind of individual, you know, perceiving self as a being. So he says that uh, it relies upon a kind of selfness, which is, you know, an a priori concept in order for us to perceive it all. Uh, and that intuition is the only representation that can ultimately precede thinking. So we, you know, intuit the world, which gives us concepts. You know, it is through that we actually give ourselves concepts that we can think through. So therefore, we, we begin with intuition in that way, uh, which for him births the I, which is necessary for perception itself. So maybe here we can think about uh, the difference between humans and animals in a very anthropomorphic sense where animals seem to be kind of caught in the intuition model they they get their selfness from that intuition mold uh but they cannot extrapolate from that to make inferences and and, and anything like that where all their kind of actions are robotic um conditioned actions now i totally know that these ideas have been tr have been troubled greatly by you know um post-humanist scholars and critical animal studies and all that, which I'm totally familiar with. Um, but I think that it's, you know, a, a decent way to kind of illustrate that, keeping in mind, of course, the limitation. So for him, it is only by grouping the manifold of representations in one consciousness that we can then form a kind of selfness, an identity of the consciousness. So this is the kind of birth of the self for Kant which who knows when this began to happen a few tens of thousands of years ago, hundred thousand years ago, who knows? So again, now we're going to get to the problem again of the chicken and egg thing. So you have the faculty of cognitions that perceives an object that has been united, right? United in perception, which is then forms it as a, an appearance object that can then be consumed by the faculty of cognition. So what comes first then the capacity to cognize which demands experience because it demands the formation of concepts or, you know, the propensity to see the world. Uh, to which he says that what actually what actually underwrites that, just like the synthetic a priori, is the synthetic unity of a perception. There's a distinction here between the synthetic unity of a perception and the synthetic unity of consciousness, where the former, that is the synthetic unity of a perception, uh, arrives before selfness. And it, in, it is in that sense objective, whereas the synthetic unity of consciousness is the latter part of the self and it deals or it, de it is the it is sorry, it deals with the subject and the self that is perceiving.
So the synthetic unity of a perception or apprehension, a perception uh, under underwrites that possibility of the self, of the I or whatever. Uh, so from there, in order for cog for cognition to emerge, there demands both a concept or a category, kind of unification of uh, the representations, plus an intuition or sensation. So you can't have cognitions if one of those two is missing. So this is true of what are often taken to be like pure ideas, that is uh, like mathematics, where he says that on 254, consequently all mathematical concepts are not by themselves cognitions, except insofar as one presupposes that there are things that can be presented to us only in accordance with the form of that pure sensible intuition, that is through things in, of, in space and time you know, pure sensibility relating to space and time, the thing, things out in the world that we sense and perceive, but that we cannot, <laughs> you know, actually process through experience. Because if something is pure, it is devoid of experience, to reiterate. So we should be clear, though, that when we're talking about the kind of emergence of a, of a selfness, that that selfness is in itself a kind of image, where there's a point at this birth of the self, where we can actually see ourselves to some extent, where there's a gaze from within us that recognize us, recognizes us as a self, not in a Lacanian mirror stage type way, but in something that is within us, not, you know, not with a necessity of there being an outside, like a, like a Hegel type thing. It is instead totally within us. And that for Kant, we are passive to this gaze. So then even in this kind of uh, emergence of the self or the subject or the I, there is a difference between the I that intuits the world and the I that thinks the world because these are still, they're, they're both selves in that there is a kind of autonomous action occurring, but they are two different operations of the self. So like how the our self is an image, right, to ourselves that something within us perceives, um, all kind of laws that we infer from that, you know, laws of categorization, cognization, and, and anything like that, is then that we then apply to the world, to nature, to anything, then derives from within us, right? They are not uh, like um, metaphysically, you know, put in place by some kind of divine being that is a thing in itself. Rather, it is only through us that, and that's contributing to the idea that for Kant, you know, we organize the world to some extent we as perceiving beings see the world and that through that perception make it exist and that propels us here into the transcendental analytic that is the second book of it which is the the second book of the analytic principles so for him general logic and general logic is devoid from pure logic in that it it brackets off you know individual circumstances within the world but is still interested within it with uh, the process of experiencing the world even though it's not interested with the specific experiences as a particular or specific logic would be so this can uh it depends upon for kant the division of the high th three higher faculties of cognition and these three higher faculties as we mentioned earlier are understanding power of judgment and reason so for kant understanding and power of judgment have some relation to objectivity because they have some relation to the world. So for him, objectivity, when he, and when he sought to answer that question, was when there was a concordance or a kind of um, agreement between 
an idea of something and the thing, the thing, the appearance of the thing out in the world. So there was some kind of agreement there. So he says that understanding and power of judgment are are objective to some extent in that they have a relation there. There is a kind of concordance. There is an agreement between an idea and the thing that is being perceived or seen or associated with that idea. Now, for reason, on the other hand, he says that the transcendental use of it is not objective. Uh, it's not objectively valid at all because it is devoid of all intuition. So, therefore, it does not belong to the logic of truth because truth is when something, an idea, relates to appearance in the world. So, it has a relation to experience and intuition. Uh, and it is instead, or it instead, that is the u- transcendental use of reason, it instead belongs to the logic of illusion, that which is closely linked to transcendental dialectic, which, as he mentioned in the first episode, is total hogwash for him because it pretends to be able to arrive at various conclusions uh, just by, you know, thinking it. And for him, the analytic of principles is primarily associated with the power of judgment that has the capacity to discern representations within the, within the mind. So now he's going to take the time to think about judgment or the power of judgment a little more closely. So he says that general logic cannot complete what the uh, power of judgment does because the power of judgment doesn't so much shy away from the possibility of representations and appearances. So he says that if understanding is the faculty of rules, then power of judgment is the subsumption under rules and that um, power of judgment cannot be taught. It can only be practiced, which is, yeah. All right, sure. Or well, he gives us an example. He says, you know, we could have a judge that is aware of all the rules, but is actually unaware of when to impose judgment or when judgment should be properly mobilized. So knowing the rules, which relates to kind of general logic, maybe, or actually um, it relates to the understanding, uh, whereas judgment is knowing when to apply those rules, when those rules should come into play. That's kind of funny. I don't know. I find it funny. He probably didn't find it funny. But he says that for those that lack this kind of natural capacity, examples play an integral role. So by experiencing the world and by seeing various circumstances play themselves out, then, you know, we can have a better idea of how things should go. But again, this is this is more concerned with general, kind of relating more to general logic in that it's not interested in what makes that possible, but is interested in what it necessarily looks like. So now he talks about or thinks about the schematism of the pure concept of the understanding in relation to uh, power of judgment, which deals primarily with sensible intuitions. So the idea that uh, there must be a kind of concordance between an object and a concept, uh, he says, he reminds us that the pure concept has no, or pure understanding has no association with that because the pure understanding wants to completely get rid of anything through experience or through a posteriori um, living or whatever, like the appearances or objects as they are presented to us. So what makes it possible for him that there can be an agreement between a concept and an object? He says that the transcendental doctrine of power judgment teaches us to do it, pretty much. Which, in terms of its form, so what it looks like, uh, then corresponds to the transcendental schema for him. So the transcendental schema is pure in that it comes before intuition, 
but it is uh, it is intellectual on the one hand and sensible on the other because it doesn't completely foreclose all possible experience or intuition. And it is this schema that fundamentally shapes the world. Or in his words, for we have seen there that concepts are entirely impossible and cannot have any significance, where an object is not given either from themselves or at least for the elements of which they consist. Consequently, they cannot pertain to things in themselves without regard to how and whether they may be given to us at all. That further, the modification of our sensibility is the only way in which objects are given to us. And finally, that pure concepts a priori, in addition to the function of the understanding of the category, must also contain a priori formal conditions of sensibility, namely of the inner sense, that contain the general condition under which alone the category can be applied to any object. So that is how altering our kind of sensibility or the, the way that those are organized changes the way the world is perceived, changing therefore the world itself because it's not a thing in itself. It is only ever appearance. Now, when it comes to the perception of things, that is the schematism that kind of organizes, places them all together, it demands that there is a kind of numerical formula to the thing being perceived, where the numerical kind of condition of it makes it possible for it to be easily digested, easily understood. Now, this relates to the the thing's magnitude. So the magnitude, uh, which is the measurement and therefore its realization, is only possible with number. So what the hell is the number? Uh, He says that the pure image of all magnitudes for outer sense is space. So that pure thing that we can't perceive but nevertheless exists out there as space. For all objects of the senses in general, it is time. So the pure schema of magnitude, however, as a concept of the understanding is number, which is a representation that summarizes the successive addition of one homogeneous unit to another. Thus, number is nothing other than the unity of the synthesis of the manifold of a homogenous intuition in general, because I generate time itself in the apprehension of the intuition. So again, we're getting the same kind of thing. We perceive, turns it into an intuition, a concept that allows us to then perceive again. And the number kind of allows that to occur in that we kind of, like when uh, when we send an image through the internet, the computer doesn't like send that actual image, right? It breaks it down, turns it into code so that it can process it, so that it can deliver it in an easy way. And then when it gets to the other end, then it reemerges as an image. So I think like to think of it in that way where the number is kind of like how it's kind of like breaking down coding to some extent, the thing out in the world that we can then understand. And then we, we then in our brain erect it as an image again. So this allows for the possibility of reality to come into fruition, where he says that reality is in the pure conduct of the understanding that to which a sensation in general corresponds, that therefore the concept of which in itself indicates a being in time. So reality then conforms to time. So as he says, this is on 274 to 275, since time is only the form of intuition, thus of objects as appearances. That which corresponds to the sensation in these is the transcendental matter of all objects as things in themselves. Thinghood, reality. Now every sensation has a degree or magnitude through which it can be more or less, it can more or less fill the same time, i.e., or in other words, the inner sense in regard to the same representation of an object, 
until it ceases in nothingness. Hence there is a relation and connection between, or rather a transition from reality to negation, that makes every reality representable, representable as a quantum, and the schema of reality as the quantity of something insofar as it fills time is just this continuous and uniform generation of that quantity in time as one descends in time from the sensation that has a certain degree to its disappearance or gradually ascends from negation to magnitude. Sorry for my hissing or whistling there. Uh, so when we think of reality, there is a necessity for us to have a conception of time in that reality occurs in sequence. And this is something we're going to get into later. I don't think in this episode, but the next one, uh, where there's sequence and there's simultaneity and there's um, uh, persistence. So in order for us to uh, perceive the world, to perceive reality, there must be a kind of understanding of things uh, transpiring in sequence or, or things happening, essentially, out in the world, which gives us the possibility, because time comes from in our brains, uh, gives us the possibility to recognize from within us a connection between our concept, which is always already form of appearance, moving, transitioning, altering, and the movement of the world outside. Okay, I think I'll stop there then, uh, stopping right at the transcendental doctrine of power judgment, the second chapter there. Uh, so I hope that that was helpful, that I'm able to shed some light on this, to make it accessible. Uh, it's a t Obviously, it's a tough read. Um, but for those that made it this far, if you think I missed something or, or I maybe mischaracterized something, which I obviously did because there's so many of these terms that he's so peculiar about that when I just say something like representation to signify, you know, uh, the image of something or something being represented, you know, a hardcore Kantian would be like, no, he doesn't mean it in that sense. He means it in, you know, X, Y, and Z uh, sense, which um, like obviously is cool. Uh, so if you have anything like that that you think I might have mucked up a little bit, it'd be worth mentioning it so that I, I can get a better sense of it. Uh, so that I can further improve my Kantian lexicon. But on that note, if you made it this far, take care.